Father, thank you so much for <clears throat> your deep love for us, and thank you that because of your love, you have sent Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus, who is God with us. Our greatest need has been met. We are desperate for you. And you have come, Lord Jesus. Our Savior has arrived, and we are thankful. Thank you for all of the children who are here this morning. Holy Spirit, would you make Jesus real to them? We know that's a work that only you can do. We pray that you would show yourself to them in powerful ways. We pray that you would empower those who are serving with them today. And then, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. Unless you carry the words from my mouth to the hearts of people, uh, nothing, nothing good will come. But I am dependent on you. I believe that you can. And I just want to declare before you and before this family that I'm safe and secure in Jesus Christ. And in fact, all of us are, ultimately. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us and that you're here right now. We welcome you. We welcome your presence. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, kids, you can head this way, Mission Kids. There is no middle school class today. And in fact, there will not be middle school class next week either. That's going to get started again on Sunday, January 3rd in the new year. Well, good morning. My name is Abe. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, I'm one of the elders and uh, teachers here at Soma Tacoma. And I have a few quick announcements for us. Before I give you the announcements, just want to remind us that as a church family, the way we understand what it means to be the church together is that we are uh, a church of missional communities where we connect as family on mission, uh, endeavoring to make disciples in all the normal stuff of life. So what you experience today, if you're new with us as a part of SOMA, is one little sliver of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about missional communities or being a part of our church family on mission all day, every day, you can stop by the Connect table on your way out. So a couple quick announcements. During the during the holiday season, the Advent season, the Christmas season, as a church family, we engage things a little bit differently. We call it Advent conspiracy. We got that idea from a church in Portland about 10 years ago. And so the idea is we're sort of conspiring against the consumerism of Christmas to say, what if we spent less on ourselves and those who aren't quite as in need, and we, we gave more to those who are in need. And so we are giving to two local organizations this year. Number one, Network Tacoma, which has been around for about 20 years, 25 years, and they help homeless families in our city. And then the other organization we're giving to is a church called Dope Church, which is in Fife, and they are making disciples of those who are caught in addiction and homelessness and the sex trade. And uh, Network and Dope Church have both had some of their representatives and leaders here in our gatherings in recent weeks. So if you've been with us for very long, you've heard from 
from Greg Landon, and you've heard from Chris Thomas from Dope Church and heard a lot about what they've been up to, and Annalise Cirillo from Network and uh, Chris Thomas from Dope Church will actually be at the Connect table after the gathering today if you'd like to hear more about either one of those organizations. And on Christmas Eve, we'll actually be giving out some information cards about some of the families who are connected to Network. So the thought is, if you're giving some money to Advent Conspiracy and you know that you're helping these families, it might be fun then Christmas morning uh, with whoever you're celebrating Christmas with to say, hey, here's, here's kind of a gift that, that I was able to help give this year. And maybe read about this family, maybe pray for a family, and kind of celebrate the opportunity to bless someone in need in our very own city. So those cards will be available on Christmas Eve. If you want to give to Advent Conspiracy, there's a few different ways to do it. One, you can go to our website. Two, if you're part of the city, which is sort of our uh, like community social network for our church, you can give through the city uh, designated for Advent Conspiracy. You can give in the baskets today if you want to write a check. You can designate that for Advent Conspiracy. And then also on Christmas Eve, we'll be taking a special gathering or a special offering for Advent Conspiracy. Speaking of Christmas Eve, it's just a few days away and we'll be gathering here in this room at 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. So two things, bring some Christmas cookies. There'll be tables right inside the door. You can set those on the tables and we'll be celebrating together afterwards with some cookies and hot chocolate. And then also please ask the Spirit who he might have you invite to that gathering as it's a great opportunity to maybe invite somebody who wouldn't normally come to a church gathering but might be thinking about that because it's Christmas time. And then finally, uh, just wanted to inform all of you that there's a little group of us that gather here every Sunday morning for prayer at 9 a.m. And we realized that we didn't invite all of you and we just want to tell you you're invited. It's not a special club. Uh, it's for whoever wants to come and pray 9 a.m. Sunday morning. And it's a great great time. The Spirit begins to kind of stir things up for what's going to happen in the morning, and we have a great time together, and you're all invited to come. So I'd like to begin with a question this morning. Uh, This is something that we've done here and there in our history. We used to do it a lot more than we have recently, but today I'm going to ask you a few questions and, and invite you into a bit of a conversation here. So I'd love to begin by hearing a few stories uh, from some of you. Tell, tell us about the greatest Christmas gift you ever received and, and how you responded when you received that gift. Okay, so what was, what was the best Christmas gift you ever received and then how did you respond when you received that gift? And I'm just going to go ahead and take away the, the answer of Jesus, okay? Now we're at a church gathering, it's December 20th. Hopefully that, that answers maybe on some of your minds. You can't say Jesus, okay? So, because we're going to talk about that this morning, right? But what is the greatest Christmas gift you've ever received, and how did you respond? Well, one of the best gifts I ever received was in, I can't remember if it was Christmas 83, 82, 83, or 84, but it was my Atari 2600. And some of you are going, oh, I remember giving my kids one of those. And others of you are going, oh, I remember getting one of those. And then some of you are like, what the heck is that? (laughs) Atari 2600. And I responded with crazy devotion to that thing. I mean, my my brother and I, it was a shared gift with my older brother, but that didn't dampen my excitement. I was totally stoked, very surprised. And we played that thing like eight hours a day for the rest of Christmas break. 
And I, and I want to tell everybody I knew. So like crazy devotion to this thing, excitement, and a great desire to tell everybody I knew about this amazing gift that I'd received. Well, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about the greatest gift that, that we could ever receive for Christmas and how that should inform our response. First, I just want to remind you a little bit of what I talked about last week because last week and this week really go together. It's kind of a one-two punch. And so just a quick recap of last week. I've been really struggling for the past few months with some physical and neurological symptoms of stress and overwork. I've had memory issues, headaches, chest pains, disorientation. I forgot to tell you last week that I have been to the doctor. (laughs) Uh, Some of you left like, holy cow, is he going to die? I got a text from somebody like, have you been to the doctor yet? Uh, And I really appreciated that. Uh, But yes, I've been to the doctor twice. And the doctor's pretty certain that, in fact, these are symptoms that are coming from stress and overwork, and we're on a treatment plan and that sort of thing. But I also believe that our loving Heavenly Father sovereignly allowed me to really be humbled by my inadequacy, my brokenness, my need, my inability to do things and think things and remember things. I'm convinced that our Father has been at work in my life through these circumstances specifically to show me a greater understanding of my need for a Savior. That's what's been, that's what's been going on. And last week I recapped um, three specific lies that the Holy Spirit has revealed that I have been believing actually for a long time. Lie number one, God does not define me or give me significance I'm on a quest for significance, and I will define myself. I am radically committed to self-definition. That is a lie that the Spirit revealed that I've been believing. The most frequent time that lie number one would manifest itself in my life is when I would succeed. I had a list of things that I would point to internally to prove to myself that I had worth and significance. And on my list were things like my memory, my Bible knowledge, my parenting skills, my intelligence. Lie number two, I would not be seen as weak, broken, needy, foolish, or small. I refused to be seen that way. If I was seen that way, then my significance was was greatly at risk. The Spirit told me I was willing to be selectively broken, selectively weak, but not to have a reputation as one who is Broken and very much in need of the grace of God. That's not the reputation that I've wanted to have. The most frequent time when lie number two would manifest itself in my life was when I was confronted. When I'm confronted, I would make a case, either inwardly or outwardly, most often with my wife or my children, for why the person confronting me was wrong, rather than simply admitting that I had some deficiency. And then the final lie that the Spirit revealed is that I do not need God's grace. God's grace does not define me. And the most frequent time the lie number three would manifest itself is when I failed. When I failed, I would grovel or perform to help make things right. And I would also compare myself to others and think, at least I am not as in need as that person. So I want to encourage all of us to watch your responses to success, failure, and confrontation. 
Watch how you respond to success, failure, and confrontation. The way we respond in those moments are huge indicators of what's going on in our heart, huge indicators of what we really believe to be true about our identity. And I think if you looked at the way I was responding to success, failure, and confrontation in my life, there's only one conclusion to draw, and that's that I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And that's what we talked about last week, that we're all weak, broken, needy, foolish, and small, and that we all need a Savior, and that Jesus, in fact, according to his own testimony in Luke chapter 4, when he opens the scroll of Isaiah 61, he actually came for the weak, broken, needy, foolish, and small of this world. And if we don't see ourselves that way, then we won't anticipate the arrival of a Savior because, well, we don't really need one. And today, we want to keep talking about the Christmas narrative and look at how a few characters who were aware of their great need then responded when Jesus came. And the big idea that we're going to talk about today is that the ones who most celebrate the arrival of Jesus are the ones who are most aware of God's gracious gift of a Savior. So if you understand your need, you will anticipate the arrival of Jesus be on the edge of your seat. I can't wait for Jesus to come. I can't wait for Christmas to come when I get to celebrate his arrival. Now, obviously, you can celebrate any time. And then still, you're on the edge of your seat going, I can't wait for him to come again because you know you need a Savior. But now, today, we're going to talk about, okay, so what, what do you do when, when that gift comes? And you see that gift is a huge gift of God's grace, well beyond anything you could ever deserve. The answer is you celebrate. Some of you might already be burned out on Christmas. It's the 20th. Some of you might be burned out on Christmas because you've been at it for years, and like every year it's just kind of a drag. And I, I, I want to I challenge you a little bit. I want to say, I know that there are sad circumstances in our lives, and I know that for some of us, Christmas sort of accentuates the sadness of some of the circumstances of our lives. Broken families, abandonment, disappointment, economic inequality. A lot of these issues can really come to the surface during Christmas. And that is sad. I totally agree with that. But listen, sadness doesn't trump joy. It doesn't trump joy. Happiness is not the same as joy. Happiness is dependent on your circumstances. Joy is not. Joy is a fruit of God's Spirit. Joy is something deep within you that has nothing to do with what's going on around you and everything to do with what's already happened to you in Christ Jesus. That's joy. And if you have a little bit of a ho-hum attitude towards Christmas, I just want to say it's okay to be sad, but do not, do not miss out on the joy of celebrating the arrival of your Savior. Let's look at Luke chapter 2. I purposely did not put these verses on the screen because there's a lot of them. We're going to read verses 8 through 40. So if you have a Bible, that'd be great. There's some on each one of the communion tables if you need to grab one. Grab your phone. Luke 2, first group of folks we're going to meet are the shepherds. Quick, important background detail on the shepherds. They're on the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. 
These guys are social outcasts. No one wants to be friends with a shepherd. They can't participate in corporate worship because they're always unclean. They're on the outside of town. They live in yurts. I mean, these guys are, nobody wants to hang out with them. They're on the outs and they know it. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So these shepherds, these lowly shepherds who should have been last on the list of people to find out that Jesus came, guess what? They're the first to find out that Jesus shows up. And how does God tell them? He sends the angel choir to do a personal rock concert for these guys. I mean, their front row seat at the most amazing stadium show ever. I've seen Coldplay live. I've seen U2 live. It's worth every penny. This is nothing compared to, like, that's nothing compared to this. And they're shepherds. Who are we? We get the The angel choir. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. How could you not run? You would have to. They're running. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If you get confronted by a multitude of angels and you walk away alive, you have great reason to celebrate. And not only are they alive, but they get news of God's Savior Son being born. And they run and they see Him with their own eyes. And how do they respond? They're lowly shepherds. They find out from the angels. What do they do? They're stoked. Why? Because they knew they didn't deserve this amazing gift that they got. And they, they respond by glorifying and praising God and thanking Him. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, we're going to skip a few verses. Mary and Joseph go to the temple. They take care of some official sacrifices that they have to do. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Just want to stop on that word for a second. The root word of consolation, you you might hear it's console, which is to comfort So Simeon is waiting. 
He's waiting. He has that anticipation that we talked about last week. He's waiting and waiting for what? For God to fulfill all the promises in the Old Testament when He said, I'm going to come and comfort my people. Isaiah 40 verse 1 is one of those many, many verses. I'm going to come and comfort. I'm going to come and console my people. And Simeon is waiting. He knows his God's people need a Savior, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. I mean, can you imagine? This man was told by the Spirit, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. This man is anxiously awaiting the arrival of Messiah, and now he comes, and he's actually holding him. I mean, we, we can't even begin to understand what that would be like. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There's the word again, you sent your Savior, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He's the Savior, but it ain't going to be easy. And Simeon knows something of the, the promise that God made to Abraham being fulfilled in Jesus. What was the promise God made to Abraham? Through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. Simeon's the first one to mention the Gentiles. Jesus didn't just come to save Israel. Jesus came to save the whole world. And Simeon's holding salvation in his hands. Salvation for the whole world. And what does he do? He blesses God. He can't contain himself. And Anna, the next character, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, Anna, hanging out in the temple a holy woman of God, she loves worshiping God and she catches sight of the Messiah Son. And what does she do? She runs over and she can't stop declaring. So we see this pattern with, with these characters. The shepherds, this motley crew of poor social outcasts who are clearly stunned by the fact that they were among the first to hear the arrival of Jesus. They're moved to what? Worship and proclamation. They worship and they proclaim. In Simeon and Anna, we find two holy, righteous, spirit-inspired, God-fearing people who are clearly moved by the arrival of Jesus. They see him as a fulfillment of all of God's promises. And what do they do? They worship and they proclaim. 
So when we understand our need for a Savior and when we understand the magnitude of God's grace in giving us a Savior, we can't hold back our joy, thankfulness, and worship. You just can't hold it back. I am desperately in need of a Savior, and He's come. He has come. I'm saved. I'm off the hook. And so are you. We are desperately in need of a Savior. The whole world is desperately in need of a Savior. And He's come. He's come. Now you know why all these amazing Christmas hymns that we sing say the types of things that they do. Joy to the world. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Glory to God in the highest. Go tell it on the mountain. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It's this idea of like, everyone has got to know about this. I mean, this is a total game changer. And if we don't see our need and we don't understand the sheer grace of God in giving us this Savior, then none of this makes any sense. So I want to share one passage of Scripture that the Holy Spirit has used over the last few months to show me in a new way the radical grace that is offered to you and to me through Jesus Christ. Understanding a little more of God's grace for me, a little more of God's grace for me, and I have a lifetime to continue to grow in my understanding of of God's deep love and grace for me. But understanding just a little more of God's grace for me as a weak, broken, needy, foolish, small man who needs a Savior, guess what it's been doing? It's been producing in me great joy. I have enjoyed this December more than any other December I can remember. Because I know I'm broken and needy, and guess what? I know God meets me right there with His grace. So here's the passage. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Two verses. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You guys are in trouble. I haven't preached for like three months, so you know I've got something, something saved up here. It's been bottled up in me. I can't wait. And I held back last week. You're getting both barrels today. So, first part of the verse. Since we've been justified by faith. Paul's making a turn. Romans 1 through 4. Paul makes a case for the fact that no one is made right with God through their works. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jews, Gentiles alike, all condemned, either by the law itself or by their own conscience. But in Romans 3, we also see that because God is righteous and just, what does He do? He offers justification freely to humans. Justification by faith. What does justification mean? It means to be declared righteous by God. So God looks at you and He sees a weak, broken, needy, foolish, small person who's a sinner because of all your rebellion against God, but somehow, mysteriously and miraculously, he's going to be able to look at you and say, righteous, saint. What in the world makes that possible? Faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you believe, when you have faith in Jesus, you say, he died on the cross and he took away my sin, so I'm no longer defined by my sin. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. But Jesus gives me his righteousness, the great exchange. So I'm not just morally neutral. I'm actually righteous. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1 through 4. Paul pushes the clutch and shifts gears 
Since all that's true, since you're justified by faith, now we're going to start to talk about the implications. And in verse 1 and 2 of Romans 5, there's two gigantic implications. He gets off to quite a crazy start here as he shifts gears from chapter 4 to chapter 5. There's two implications. One, we have peace with God. And two, we have access by faith into grace. But there's something in between those two phrases that I just want to highlight, and then we'll get into the phrases. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then through Him, we have access by faith into grace. So this peace and grace that we have now is through Jesus Christ. So if everything I'm about to say about grace and peace, if any of it's true, it's only true because of Jesus Christ. It's only true because Jesus says, I'm the door in John. You get to walk through the door of Jesus Christ into this place of grace and peace. Jesus is your substitute. He took your place and he gives you his rights as a son, which includes grace and peace. Everything I'm about to say is pointed at Jesus and is about his work for you and for me. So, verse 1, this idea of peace with God. This is the book that Don Crook recommended to me by the guy named Bill Tell. I mentioned it last week. Don called this brother uh, and told him a little bit about my story. And this brother told Don, hey, I think Abe probably has an issue with his identity. Didn't want to hear that at the time, but proved to be dead on. And so this is what Bill Tell says about Romans 5.1. The word peace in Romans 5.1 comes from a Greek verb meaning to bind together that which has been separated. To bind together, to tie together with the rope something that had been separated. We have been bound back to God. He says, picture this. You're standing with God face to face. And that's, that's very important, face to face. With his arms around you holding you tight. Remember I had Brother Dave Sattler come up here last week and give me a big bear hug and I was distracted by my phone. So face to face, arms around you holding you tight. And then someone has tied a rope around your waist, tied you together with a long rope, and then keeps walking around you in circles, wrapping you tighter and tighter with more and more loops. And then they secure the rope with a knot. The person circling you with the rope is Jesus. Colossians 1.20 tells us that Jesus binds us to the Father, making peace by the blood of his cross. So it's not my performance that creates this relationship. It's Jesus, and he has bound us tight. That's what it means to have peace with God. You're literally tied to God face to face. And then later in Romans, in chapter 8, Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of God. I think he has this idea in mind. And what this means for me personally is that I'm free from maintaining my relationship with God. And that may sound radical. I'm free from maintaining my relationship with God. I'm free from managing my relationship with God. See, I've viewed my spiritual disciplines as a way to maintain intimacy with God. But here's the thing. If, 
if Jesus Christ ushers you into intimacy with God, if he did everything possible to make it possible for you to be intimate with God, and now you're bound together with God, what in the world do you and I have to do with that? Is it up to you to keep you, you close to God? It's not. It is not. You have nothing to do in terms of maintaining your relationship with God. I, I'm at, to some of you, that probably sounds like heresy. Now, the reality is, we lack awareness of our intimacy with God. Remember last week? I'm giving God the Father a bear hug, but I got something going on over here. I'm very distracted. I have something in my hand, and I need to set it down and just rest in the intimacy. Because you are distracted from your intimacy with God, because you don't understand, and I don't understand that we're bound with God, that's why Scripture says, make no provision for the flesh. That's why Scripture says, draw near to God. It's about us. It's not about Him. He hasn't gone anywhere. Our Father offers an intimacy with us that is so comprehensive, complete, and unconditional that you can be as close with Him at 6 a.m. alone in your room as you can at 7 p.m. in a crowded restaurant. That's the kind of intimacy that He offers. Now, let's talk about the grace in which we now stand. Again, I'm going to read from Mr. Tell. I often hear my friend Bill Thrall say, grace is not a theology we believe. It is an environment that we live in. Hmm. Unfortunately for me, until I went through my dark night of the soul and began to get a new glimpse of the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20:24, grace for me was something to be studied to be taught boldly, and to be thankful for. It was not the everyday reality of an unconditional friendship. I knew grace as a theological word. I needed to learn grace as a relational word. We might say that grace is the theology of relationship with God and with one another. He then goes on to describe grace as a place with an environment that's created by a relationship. Grace is a place with an environment created by a relationship, which is consistent with what Paul says in Romans 5, uh, 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You stand in a place. Bill Tell quotes John Stott, the brilliant British theologian, who says, We do not fall in and out of grace. We stand in it, for that is the nature of grace. You're not in God's grace one day and then out of God's grace the next. You live there. Now, after reading all that, I wrote this. There's a couple sentences, jotted these in the margin in the book. I have viewed grace more transactionally than relationally. I've said, I don't want to need grace. When all along, grace has been a place for me to dwell. And I'm beginning to wonder, I was just thinking about this yesterday, driving around. I think this might be what Jesus means when he says, abide in me. John 15, 4. But that's a thought for a different day. See, I viewed grace as something that God gives me as 
needed. I sin, God gives me grace. I've seen it almost like a payment, like, like an ATM machine, right? Like a place where I can go to get something that I need and then I leave. My sin creates a shortfall in my moral budget, and so I go to the grace ATM and I talk to God and say, hey, listen, I messed up and I need your grace. Can you please give me some? Okay, thank you very much. And then I leave So I can balance my moral budget with this grace that I received from God. And my pride has been reluctant to receive grace from God because I don't want to need it. I've seen myself mainly as a good person who occasionally messes up. And so when I do mess up, I'm a little bummed that I actually have to kind of put God in this position of needing to give me grace. But that's very transactional. If, if grace is a place in which I stand, a place to live, a place to dwell, a place with an environment, that changes everything. So I'm beginning to see grace a little bit more like, like this. It's a picture of uh, this amazing place where my wife and I got to hang out uh, back in November. Um, yeah, that's part of the gigantic swimming pool where we floated around on those blue mats with uh, tropical fruity drinks in our hands with the sun rays beating down on us for about six days. And honestly, that's about all we did. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> I actually kind of want to go back. Um, right now, actually, I'm, I'm out. No. Um, I have, I have, my wife's caught me a few times like looking online to think when can we go back and where. Um, it's going to be a while. But this is the place God wants you to live. And it's a metaphor, of course. <laughs> Soma Cancun, right? Doesn't have a bad ring to it. I think that some of us, the way, the way we approach grace, it's like, we're out on the sand volleyball court down on the beach because um, there's a competition to be had and there's something to prove and there's, there's, there's work to be done and I need to know I'm valuable and significant. So I'm out there and I'm sweating and I'm working hard and I'm getting sandy. Um, and so occasionally I need to take a break from that and go take a dip in God's grace because I'm hot and I need the cool refreshment of God's grace. Or I'm, I'm sweaty and I need the cleansing of God's grace. I am tired and I need the refreshment of God's grace. But we just, we don't linger long. We're back out because so, there's stuff to prove and stuff to do. I mean, if all I do is float around on a blue mat and drink fruity drinks, what's everybody going to think of me? And again, it's metaphorical, right? We're talking about this, the state of your soul here. It's very different. It's completely transforming my understanding. Grace beckons us. The place of grace that Jesus died to make available to you. It beckons us. The cool water, the fruity drinks, the blue rafts. It beckons. I have a question for all of us to consider and I'd love to hear some responses. 
what keeps us from dwelling in grace? We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand there by faith. So sometimes we're going to forget and we're going to get out of the swimming pool. That's part of being a Christian. That's the normal Christian life. I have thought for years, like, when am I going to just get to the place where I'm totally at rest all the time? When Jesus comes back a second time, that's the answer. Okay? I'm going to forget. I'm going to view you wrongly. I'm going to view myself wrongly. I'm going to view my wife wrongly. I'm going to mess up. But the question is, what's keeping me from, like, dwelling in grace? From just staying there? What do you think? What keeps us from dwelling in grace, from staying in the pool? There's no recognition there for us. Okay? We we actually battled it as we were there. You're in the pool and you're like, something's wrong. Especially like day three, day four. Like, am I, am I, is it okay to be a human and do what I'm doing right now? Something feels very wrong about this. And you hear the Father say, even in the pool, you're like, no, just, it's okay. Stay on the raft. You're good. Enjoy. To jump back to the metaphor, to reinforce what you're saying, there's a lot of fun to be had outside that pool. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of activities. You can make, do all kinds of cool trips and cruises and swim with the dolphins and snorkel and go to the Mayan ruins. There's a lot to do. And volleyball's pretty fun too, right? So there's an allure. There's an attraction that feeds our pride. Yeah, yeah, we fear fruitlessness. And yet, ironically, outside of God's grace is the path of fruitlessness. Yeah, layers. Only the Holy Spirit can make this truth real to your heart and to my heart. But I'm telling you, in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which Romans 5, 1 and 2 makes so clear, there's nothing ultimate hanging in the balance. You and I are convinced that there's some other kind of significance to be had than what we're offered in relationship with our Father. We are convinced that there's some other kind of security, some other kind of satisfaction, some other kind of acceptance. And I'm telling you, there's not. There's there's nothing hanging in the balance. I don't need anything from you. I'm just free to love you and serve you because I need nothing from you, nothing ultimate. Another analogy, if you like to play poker. With, with, With relationship with the Father, there's no chips on the table. There's no chips on the table. You're risking nothing, nothing ultimate. You can literally go all in on every hand. There's no chips. And one more, if you like to make deals or negotiate. There's nothing on the table. You think, well, I'll put this on the table to try to get them to put that on the table. Well, I'm not going to put this on. This, that's, that's off the table. There's nothing on the table. There's no negotiate. There's nothing to withhold or, or try to you know, manipulate out of God or other people. Everything is there for you. We just don't believe it. I haven't believed it. I have not believed that 
ultimately, I was significant in my relationship with Jesus. Friends, the Bible says we share in His glory. We share in His glory. C.S. Lewis says something like, man, if, if we saw each other with the glory that we actually have, we'd, we'd bow down and worship. There's a glory that we have. And I'm busy with something in my hand while I'm trying to hug the Father. Paul makes it clear in this verse, the only way to walk in grace, the only way to dwell in the place of grace is through faith. That's the only way. That's the only way. And the Bible says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So there's always an element of uncertainty involved with faith. So to walk by faith, to say, by faith I choose to believe that I'm in grace and that I have all the significance I need. Guess what? There's always an element of uncertainty with that, which feels risky. Because you don't know. Peter says, even though we haven't seen him, we love him. That's risky. But it's faith. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. That's the walk you've been invited into as a Christian. The walk of faith. I'm learning that in this place of grace, that grace is a place. Grace is a place. In the place of grace, I'm safe. In the place of grace, I'm loved. In the place of grace, I'm worthy and significant. In the place of grace, I'm free. In the place of grace, I'm seen. In the place of grace, I'm known. In the place of grace, I can rest. So many times in the last month, I've gone into situations and into relationships and the old desire to want to sort of acquire something or be something or be seen a certain way or prove something or get some significance somehow out of the the situation, the Spirit has come and said, no, 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 just rest, just be You're safe. And it's true. In the place of grace, I'm free to love because I'm not trying to get something. In the place of grace, I'm joyful. In the place of grace, I'm confident. It's grace that allows us to do what the Spirit's been telling me for weeks, which is just stop. Relax. Release. Let it go. To use Bill Tell's words, lay it down. It's grace that allows us to stop our relentless commitment to self-definition. It's grace that allows us to freely admit that we're weak, broken, foolish, small, and needy. Why? Because we know that God, in His amazing grace, will come and meet us in all those places of brokenness and need. That's what He says that He does over and over in the Scriptures. He gives grace to the humble. It's grace that allows us to reject prideful thinking. It's grace that gives us true freedom. Now, there's some of you here this morning who, you you just need to get back in the pool. You need to come to the Father and you need to say, you know what? I receive your grace yet again. And guess what? Don't be frustrated when a few hours later you have to do it again. That's a part of that beautiful place of grace. He's always just beckoning you back. But there's others of you who've never entered the place of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. You hear about it and you think, wow, that must be nice. And I'll tell you, it is. It is. 
but I didn't do diddly squat to earn it. And you're convinced you have to. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I have done everything necessary. The righteous life you're striving so hard to acquire, the fruitful life, the life that proves to everybody that you're actually worth a darn, Jesus says, I already lived it. I already lived it for you. And the death that you deserve because of your relentless efforts to prove yourself, I took the penalty for that. Come, come into relationship with me. Lay down all of your proving. Lay down all of your striving. Lay down all of your efforts and receive my grace. That's the good news of the gospel. God has graciously given us a Savior. And I can't wait to celebrate. That's what we're going to do with our remaining time that we have. I'm going to pray and give thanks, and then we're going to um, come to the table, get our communion elements. We remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for us so that we can have access by faith into this place of grace. And then we'll go back to our seats. We'll take communion together, all together, and then we're going to sing a few songs. We have a handful of songs we're going to sing on the back end here today. Have a little bit of time of celebration together. If you want to go get mission kids and bring them in or even younger kids and, and sing, we're going to sing three or four songs here at the end. So if you want to have them join us, you certainly can. We will also have some people, two, two folks in the back for prayer, Randy and George, during our singing time if, if you'd like prayer. And then at the end of the gathering, a few of us will be up here as well. Uh, the crooks, Don and Bunny and myself will be available for prayer if the Spirit is stirring in you and you need to admit your need for a Savior. You express your desire to enter or re-enter the place of God's grace. So let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then we'll move to the tables. During our first song that we sing together, after we take communion, if we could have um, whoever's going to pass the baskets this morning, go ahead and pass those during the first song that we sing all together. Oh, Father, I'm so thankful for what you've done. Thank you for giving your son. Like Simeon and Anna and the shepherds, we say, glory to God in the highest. I can't believe that you have come for me. I can't believe you've come for the people in this room. I can't believe you've come for the church all over the world. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. After all that we experienced and enjoyed with you in the garden, we squandered it. And we're on a relentless quest to prove that we're God, not you. And you come, Lord Jesus, and you humble yourself. And you become the broken one, the needy one, the foolish one, the small one, so that we can be whole, so that we can be significant, so that we can be wealthy in you. And it's all for your glory. Paul calls it your glorious grace. May we exalt you, worship you, give thanks to you, and boldly proclaim to anyone who will listen that our Savior has come. Amen.